Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. We got gambling. We got gerrymandering. We got Mike DeWine taking credit for spending money that he was against receiving. It's going to be some fun conversations on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with our cast of regulars, Laura Johnston, Lisa Garvin, and Layla Atassi. It's a Thursday. Christmas is fast approaching. We got a lot to get done before the end of the year, including this conversation. Let's go. Did Ohio's Supreme Court justices give us any clue in their questions Wednesday about what they think of the gerrymandered congressional and legislative district maps created by Governor Mike DeWine and other elected leaders? Lisa, we've been waiting for that hearing. This was about the legislative maps, not the congressional maps, of course. But we were looking for clues. Did we get them? Yeah, I think we saw a healthy dose dose of skepticism across the board on the Ohio Supreme Court. Chief Justice Maureen O'Connor was very skeptical of, of the maps that were produced and the process used to produce them. She pointed to a couple of pieces of evidence. You know, she pointed to a, La, a Frank LaRose tweet where he said that the maps were asinine. And she pointed to DeWine's statements as he was signing the, the maps that they might not be constitutional. And Judge O'Connor said... Something's either constitutional or it's not. And you can't say it's kind of constitutional, but she didn't, <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was a great, I would have loved to have been in the courtroom when she said that. And um, she asked a few questions about, can the court change the candidate filing deadline and or the election date? What are the next steps, you know, after, after these hearings? Um, other judges, other justices ruled in, uh, Jennifer Bruner, one of the Democrats, she's a completely opposed to the maps and said all the constitutional rules were ignored in making them. Our favorite, Pat DeWine, signaled that the court is constrained, might be constrained from enforcing the rules. Don't really know what he means by that. He didn't uh, elaborate. And well, then, uh, let's stop there. Let, let's stop there. Pat DeWine is not constrained by the rules. He shouldn't be sitting <laughs> on the case. Every legal, ethical rule says he should not be there, and he could lose his law license for this. So for him to talk about being constrained by the rules is hilarious because he's as big a hypocrite as ever has taken the stage of the Supreme Court. But go ahead, Lisa. Yeah, and he, and he has still not recused himself from this case. Another uh, Republican justice, Pat Fisher, referred to a, a ruling in uh, 2011 that set a high legal bar for finding maps unconstitutional. So he kind of hedging his bets a little bit there. But I found it very interesting. There's a North Carolina attorney who's representing Ohio Republican leaders in this case, Philip Strack. And he made a rather interesting argument. He argues that using the statewide traditional vote, which the maps were supposed to be drawn on, which would be like 54% Republican and uh, 46% uh, Democrat. He says, well, using that statewide vote is an illegal gerrymander against urban Republicans. So we can see where their arguments are coming from. Although, although the problem he has is the Constitution requires it. So, so he could say, I don't like it, 
But voters went to the polls and voted 70 percent in favor of creating districts based on the statewide vote. So that doesn't carry any weight. I, I, I do wonder if the Supreme Court would use its powers of holding people in contempt to get this done. I mean, it seems pretty clear they're going to say, no, these maps don't do what the Constitution requires. And but they can't redraw them. The Constitution is clear that they have to send it back to be redone. But unless they put some oomph in that and say, look, you're going to follow the Constitution. You're going to make it proportional to the vote. And here's the vote that matters. If they don't come back with that again because they've shown no, no intention of acting in good faith, it's just a back and forth. So unless they say, here's the deal. Time is of the essence. You have until Christmas Eve to come back to us with maps that match this. And if you don't, we're going to hold you in contempt and lock you up and you can work it out while you're in jail. That would be like the most beautiful thing that could happen to get these elected leaders to do the job that they promised to do. It's going to be interesting. It's clear, I think, that there'll be at least a 4-3 vote to throw these maps out, which is good because everybody knows they're gerrymandered ridiculously. But it's really the next steps because the deadlines are fast approaching. This is very different than the congressional maps. I don't think the case is anywhere near as strong for the congressional maps being gerrymandered. They are, but but the legislative maps are just horrendously gerrymandered. And, of course, Pat DeWine is sitting there issuing <laughs> statements about his dad's case. I mean, it just boggles the mind that he sits up there and does that. And I can't wait for the day where there's a reckoning for that because he has just abused his position in a way I've never seen before. It's a hell of a case. It's going to be fun to watch. I wonder how long it takes them to rule. They've had plenty of time to look at the pleadings, though. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Is Ohio Governor Mike DeWine seriously taking credit for spending American Rescue Plan money after criticizing Joe Biden and Democrats for creating the stimulus plan in the first place? Laura, I'm, I'm kind of stunned by this. I mean, he was very, very outspoken in saying this, the American Rescue Plan's a bad idea. No Republicans voted for it. The Democrats are abusing the taxpayers. And now, as he's running for re-election, he's running around spending it with big announcements all over the state, taking credit for it. Yeah, absolutely. I love this story by Jeremy Pelzer. It's pretty simple, but it's just kind of basically a check on keeping politicians honest. So you're right, Governor Mike DeWine is in full campaign note. I, I can't even count the number of press releases we've gotten from his team this week saying he's going to be here, he's going to be here, uh, his wife's going to be here. And basically publicizing proposals to spend hundreds of millions of dollars on grants for first responders and water projects. Those are the two big things we're seeing this week. And he's not mentioning in all of that marketing that the money's coming from the American Rescue Plan Act, and that was the coronavirus relief bill passed by Democrats last spring over criticism from Republicans, including DeWine himself. And so DeWine basically said at the time that he didn't think it was a good idea and that they shouldn't be spending all of these billions of dollars. When asked about that this week, DeWine spokesman Dan Tierney says that while the governor has opinions on various congressional bills, he's no longer a member of Congress. Like, duh. (laughs) And he says the governor has an obligation to put Ohio in the best position to compete with all the other states in the union. He has a job to keep Ohio competitive and keep Ohio's economy growing. So he's basically saying... Okay, he was against it, but but now he has a duty to spend it. 
is do you think there's a hypocrite gene? Because you know we just talked about <laughs> Pat the Wine, you know, claiming claiming that the rules may constrain the Supreme Court, yet he's abusing the rules left and right. And now Mike DeWine, you know, taking credit for spending money that he was very public and being dead set against getting. I mean, it's just bizarre. It's in. And did we even like, file? Was there even a, like a lawsuit against it at one point that you know? Um, I don't know. Yost Yost would have filed. <laughs> <laughs> he sues the Republican or the Democrats for everything they do. It, it's just it's it's a real hypocritical act to go out and uh, you know and he even said this this is the wrong time to defund the police. I'm going to fund the police. Yeah, you're funding the police with the money you criticized the Biden administration and the Democrats for approving when all of the, your fellow party members voted against can I, it. Can I it's jump? Just, in, can I jump in here? Yeah. And so ahead. you know, so it's, you know the quote that that uh, Laura from. Uh, from Dan Tierney, his spokesperson said, you know, it ended with, you know, keep our Ohio economy growing. But the follow- the rest of the quote is, and so, you know, some of those congressional debates have passed and we have to deal with the world as we find it. As if the wine is just making the best of a bad situation here by spending $2.2 bajillion on things that make him look good <laughs> to the voters he's desperately trying to court, right? I mean, that I hate that kind of... Even- messaging it's such spin i hate it it's it's misleading the press releases we're getting because he's pushing these water infrastructure grants as part of the h2o program h sorry h2 ohio program which is mainly to clean up lake erie by the way but i mean he's saying it's part of ohio's program which maybe it is but it's only ohio's program because you got the money from the federal government you know we often point out where public relations could have been done right if he would have come out and said look i've got this big pile of money that the federal government approved that i've said before i'm really worried about because it's bankrupting our grandchildren but i have it so I'm not going to not spend it. It's coming to Ohio, but I'm going to put it to causes that I think are best, even though I disagree with how the federal government is squandering the finances of the future. And he'd still get credit, you know, like he's still putting money into the police. He's still saving Lake Erie. But it would at least be honest that (laughs) but he's not. He's acting like he's the hero and he's bringing the money and no mention whatsoever that I was dead set opposed to the spending of this cash. Okay, we'll move on. You're listening to Today in Ohio. (laughs) Did the Ohio legislature pass a sports gambling bill Wednesday? Layla, this is amazing how fast this came about. We've been talking about it for seemingly forever. It was mired in the swamp of the legislature. And all of a sudden, boom, it's on DeWine's desk. That's right. Uh, Sports gambling is is legal. Well, soon will be legal in Ohio. Uh, The the Ohio Senate on Wednesday voted 31 to 1 to approve House Bill 29. Hours later, the Ohio House approved approved it on a 72 to 23 vote and it's, it's heading to DeWine for to, to be signed up. Uh, HB 29 creates different classes of betting providers. So it'll be a mix of online platforms and some brick and mortar betting centers like casinos and small kiosks in bars and restaurants. And the legislation caps the number of betting facilities per county based on population. So Cuyahoga County could end up with more of these than Lake County, Lorraine and Medina. That's so that'll be flexible out this this has been a few years in the making and, and, and a conference of committee a conference committee of house and senate members worked on the finer points of this thing some of their tweaks that finally got this across the finish line involved lowering the licensing fees for smaller bars that can operate betting kiosks and making their betting receipts tax exempt 
But anyway, assuming DeWine signs it, it could still be a year before Ohioans 21 and older can place bets. The licenses will be issued beginning, I think, April 1st, but they have to set up the system and the administrative rules and all of that has to be in place no later than January 2023. Um, so, you know, we'll we'll be waiting a little while for this to start rolling into the... Uh... Although I bet the pressure is on to get them to move more quickly. This isn't like medical marijuana where the legislature really didn't want to do it at all and they made it difficult. They want this cash. And so... I'd be surprised if it takes an entire year to get it up and running. Yeah, they got some stuff they have to do, but the roadblocks don't seem as big. What's sad about this is that we are always last. You know, other states, we're surrounded by states that have approved this or are making the money. And one of the legislators said, you know, it's not like people aren't already betting on sports. We're just making an avenue where it's legal. You know, it's like prohibition. Ohio always drags its feet. It's like the legalization of marijuana. However you feel about right. whether that's dangerous or not, it's coming. It's going to happen. It's And it's happened in Michigan and it's happened in Pennsylvania. It's happened everywhere but Ohio. And we're always the last to get on the train, right, right. even though it's clear the train and, is coming. And they believe that eventually Ohioans will place around $3.35 billion in sports-related bets annually once this market is fully developed. I mean, it feels like a little bit of a depressing number when you consider what percentage of, of that will be spent by people who probably can't afford gambling losses. But, but you know, the big beneficiary of this program will be the schools. They're going to receive 98% of the tax revenues that this generates. So, um, you know, that's uh, there is important. A f- there is a fear that this will affect decisions in games or at least create cynicism. So if there's a spread and a coach takes the star quarterback out before they cover the spread, people are going to instantly say, oh, my, they did this for the gamblers. And so we'll see a lot more of those kinds of complaints, which we don't see at all now. Sports has been fairly pure up to now, except for the terrible refereeing you often see. (laughs) So we'll have to see. You know, referees will be vilified if people lose money because they make a call, taking away a touchdown, things like that. John Cranley, the Cincinnati mayor who's uh, running for governor, has already come out today saying to to the governor, Mike DeWine, veto it because it's putting the, the power into the wrong place, that the lottery commission should oversee this, not the casino commission. But hasn't Mike DeWine pretty much said, I'm all in, he's going to sign it? Yeah, I think so, right? I, I, uh, I, I assume this won't, this won't hit any more roadblocks. Um, no, and even if he didn't, if they're veto-proof, this thing will pass. Yeah. People have wanted it for a long time. It's a big deal, it's a, and it's a lot of money, but it will change the culture of sports. It would be fascinating to look back in 10 years and see how the language of sports and and the way people view sports has changed when there's money on the line, a lot more than there is now. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Unfortunately, we've got a lot of COVID news to talk about. Let's start with the biggest shocker. Ohio has the poor fortune to be in a very small group of states with a serious coronavirus problem. What are those details, Lisa? Yeah, it's not looking good. Ohio, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Indiana Indiana accounted for 75 for well, let me back up, but I'm not seeing those numbers just right. There was a big surge in hospitalizations across the US in the last month. 75% of that increase happened in those four states, Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. And that's compared to 
15.5% increase in all the other 46 states. So it, it's obviously affecting this pocket of the Midwest. We'd like to say that it spread, you know, east from Michigan because it did a couple of weeks ago. So um, the average rise of hospitalizations has, is more than half of the recent U.S. hospitalizations. So in a word, these four states, and they're all, you know, adjacent to each other. We're seeing the worst hospitalizations in the nation right now. 1,500 in Ohio so far. Yeah, I keep trying to figure out, is there a natural order to this? Is it because of the way the weather turned and in the Midwest, we all turned our heat on and went inside, and so we're seeing it, but in other, then there'll be other pockets. But that's not really the case. The Northeast got cold. They went inside. The further out to the west it got cold they went inside it's it, i i wish we could understand why you're right it did start in michigan it, as as early days in the pandemic mm-hmm. did and then swept through it's also the thanksgiving holiday into christmas season when people are doing a lot more visiting but man that's a that's a sad place to be i remember last year we're all looking at florida and go look at florida florida <laughs> leads the nation and, mm-hmm. and well I wonder about the vaccination rates in Indiana, Ohio, Michigan, and I bet you they're lower than they are in Massachusetts or, you know, New York. Well, that leads us into the next question, Laura. (laughs) One reason Ohio has a problem is a lot of people who live here don't get vaccinated, as you say. What does some new data from the Ohio Health Department show us about the Ohio counties with the lowest rate of vaccination? Yeah, our data guru, Rich Exner, who was on this podcast for the first time yesterday, helped compile this information, and Bob Higgs wrote about it. It's pretty clear that in counties across Ohio where vaccination rates are below the state average, the chances of death from COVID-19 are significantly higher, nearly double in some instances. Hospitalization rates showed a similar relationship, and they actually broke it down by age. So for population groups of 18 and older, 30 and older, or 40 and older, in each case, these rates are 35 to 40 percent higher in the counties with vaccination rates below the average. And that state average is 58.38 percent as of Tuesday. The We talked about this, you and I, yesterday, and it was like, duh, it's not a surprise that right. counties with a low rate would be. But the fact that it could be double, I mean, that, that's a staggering kind of statistic and And that's just for hospitalization the deaths is 75 percent to 94 percent higher yeah i mean it's really clear look i've I've, we keep getting besieged from readers that want us to break down the data as we talked about earlier in the week between those who are vaccinated and those who are not because if you're vaccinated and taking precautions you want to know what the risk is to you and the overall numbers mean nothing to you because most of the the numbers we're talking about are people who are unvaccinated and people who are vaccinated really don't care about that but we can't get it uh, really in much detail and so we're left to talk about the the macro and the macro is in the counties with low vaccinations they have major league coronavirus problems right and the low vaccination counties tend to be the more rural communities because delaware county which is basically a suburb of columbus at this point is the highest rate of any county in ohio at 74 percent it has the lowest death rate in the state and then you look at the greater cleveland counties seven of them that most of them all but portage have vaccination rates topping 60 percent and then we are also in the lowest deaths per 100,000 residents. Cuyahoga has the fifth lowest rate. So even though you look at those big numbers that pop up, you know, Cuyahoga is always near the top when you're looking at just gross numbers and you look at the state school districts, you know, it's always an urban school district. But when you're looking at per capita, 
the, the urban and suburban counties have much lower death rates and hospitalization rates than rural. You know, do you think there's a chance this has to do with the death of a lot of media? In rural Ohio, they don't have media coverage, and so they're kind of left to watch their Fox News, which is, you know, created all sorts of falsehoods about the vaccine. Do you think it's just they're not getting accurate information about the vaccine? They're getting the Tucker Carlson nonsense about the danger of it, believing it, and not getting vaccinated? I mean, absolutely, but I don't think it's just that they can only watch Fox News. Like, if you can watch Fox News, you can watch any other any other cable program. I think it's it's just this weird political divide that came with the vaccinations that I don't think other countries are seeing. That somehow, you know, if you're super Republican, you're anti-vaccine. I don't totally understand the correlation, but it's very clear it's there. And look at where the Republican areas or the state are. They're the rural areas. So the result of this surge is a new round of stress for hospitals. We've talked about how Cleveland hospitals have stopped elective surgeries and restricted visitation. Now they're bringing back some other practices from earlier in the pandemic. Layla, it feels like we've just stepped back in time. What's going on? Exactly. We're pretty much back to where we were at the start of the pandemic with regards to the impact that this latest surge has had on hospitals. UH Cleveland Clinic and Metro Health are nearly at full capacity. So the hospitals are pulling out all those strategies from the 2020 pandemic playbook. They're postponing the elective surgeries, transferring patients to other hospitals, and refusing new emergency department patients. As Julie Washington points out in her story, The biggest problem is with the number of available ICU beds. In early December, Ohio hospitals collectively had only about 750 open ICU beds out of about 3,800. A little less than half of ICU beds were taken up by COVID-19 patients. The Cleveland Clinic's ICU departments are only at about 6% available beds. And of course, you know, that sets off the whole domino effect Throughout the healthcare system, log jams of patients in the emergency department and ambulances waiting hours to deliver patients to EDs, long-term care facilities are reluctant to take patients from hospitals where COVID is surging. And there, there's an overall shortage of caregivers, which, of course, adds strain to the entire system, too. Healthcare systems that are, are near capacity can take some steps to ease the pressure, like they can transfer patients to other hospitals or move patients to home or hospice care. And Sometimes health systems reduce the number of new patients that they're admitting by by going on what's called EMS bypass, which means that the ambulances are told that the hospital's full and patients should be taken elsewhere. But some hospitals like SUMA aren't taking transfers from other hospitals at all because they can't. In fact, you know, that region has been hit so hard that their hospitals are so full, they're transporting patients to other hospitals in Northeast and Central Ohio to find beds. So it is really quite a mess. And I'm wondering if the next step is to rebuild those pop-up COVID units we saw at the start of the pandemic, the ones that resembled Civil War field hospitals, that really might be the only way to alleviate the strain on our hospitals right now. Well, and uh, there, there are kind of two things going on, too. I mean, we the hospital workers, Hannah Drown did a great piece a few weeks back talking to, to the anxiety of hospital workers who are seeing death and suffering of people who needn't do it because they could have gotten a vaccine. We're doing another round. If you know somebody, have them reach out to hdrown, H-D-R-O-W-N, at cleveland.com. 
but but that's getting worse. I mean, th- these are some of the most traumatized people in our midst, and they're needlessly being traumatized again. The other thing, and we did stories about this early in the pandemic, and Layla, you mentioned this last week, not getting some of these elective surgeries right. is endangering people's lives. Right. I mean, this is not, you know, facelifts we're talking about. This is removal of tumors and things that that ultimately could save somebody's life if it doesn't get worse. And they're getting blocked now. Right. So you, you have not people who did get the vaccine, who've done everything right, who can't get taken care of because of all the people who refuse to get the vaccine right. and are now filling up hospitals. Right. And I'm just... Sorry. No. I, I just keep hearing these horror stories from people who work in the, the hospitals or who's whose loved ones are EMTs and they're saying it is just awful. It is the worst we've ever seen it. Do not get hurt. You will have to, you know, you won't get care. People are being like housed in janitorial closets. It's awful. And then we have this world where people are walking around without masks and like celebrating Christmas and going to Christmas parties. It It's so weird that it's such a bad situation in the hospitals. And before when it was like that, it was like us all pulling together and everybody had their like, we love a healthcare worker sign in their front yard. And there was this real community. And now it's just kind of like, eh, like I'm living my life. And I, I fear. Well, this, but, this... but Laura, the evidence is clear. If you're triple vaccinated, you're pretty well protected. Right. So... right. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm saying it's so bizarre that we are having this triage crisis situation in the hospitals when it doesn't have to be that way and when life is returning to normal for so many people and i fear that this is going to affect the healthcare industry long term because what young person looks at this right now and says yeah i want to go in that field (laughs) you know i i I just want to also say that the this the the problem that we're seeing in the hospitals this uh, you know, delay of of much needed care for people who are suffering with all sorts of conditions that are considered to be, you know, elective surgeries and things like that. This is the strongest counterpoint to all of the arguments that getting vaccinated, wearing a mask, that those things are simply a matter of personal choice. Because right. it, it's not just simply that you are preventing the spread of COVID when you get vaccinated and that you're wearing a mask but also that you are preventing our hospitals from getting so overrun by COVID that it can't deal with any other emergency. It can't deal with any other, you know, important uh, procedure that that your neighbors, your family members need. So this is so far beyond the, the discussion about personal choice. And I feel like maybe we need to make that a stronger point. Maybe I need to write a column yeah. about that. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Okay, you're listening to Today in Ohio. No one is blaming deer hunting for Ohio's COVID surge, even though the coronavirus has run rampant in the white-teeled deer population. How many more deer did hunters kill in the recently closed deer hunting week compared to last year, Lisa? All I know is if I sat in my backyard, I could probably bag the limit and get a couple of eight to ten <laughs> pint bucks and, 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 and they'll walk right up to me. <laughs> but no, uh, for the gun week of deer, deer hunting season, and they do because people feed them by hand. It's crazy. Um, for the gun week of deer hunting season, 70,413 deer were harvested. Uh, 51% of those were does, and this is up about 8% over the three-year average. Um, so we had 51% of those were does, 36% were bucks, and then 11% of the harvest was button bucks, which are bucks that just before their first uh, growth of antlers, usually about six months to a year old. Yeah, see them all Aww. in my backyard. 
<laughs> so in the you know, I said, oh well, you know they they I, they can reproduce. So anyway, but yeah, the 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 hunting was best in eastern Ohio. The top four counties were Coshocton County. There were twenty four hundred and three deer taken there, followed by Tuscarawas, Muskingum, and Ashtabula counties. So uh, yeah, that's plenty of deer to you know. I I said. I said no one is blaming deer hunting for the COVID surge, but, I mean, we don't know. We do know that COVID is running rampant in rural areas, which is where the deer hunting was. We did have warnings before the hunting season that people needed to take care. I hope they did. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Do we have more insight into why Cleveland City Council Member Kerry McCormack abandoned his bid to be council president and then did the nomination himself for Blaine Griffin to be council president? Layla, I think we got some insight (laughs) yesterday, did we not? Yeah, the development here is that Blaine Griffin this week named the members of his leadership team, and they include Kerry McCormack as the majority leader and Councilwoman Jasmine Santana as the majority whip, which is the role that she served under Kevin Kelly. McCormack, of course, wanted to be the next council president and then not only abandoned that ambition as you said but was then the one to nominate Blaine for the job at the council caucus soon after election day now at the time we had sort of speculated that he realized Blaine had the votes and not only is it dumb to still pursue the position when you have no chance of winning but it's just unwise to run afoul of the incoming council president if you want to maintain a harmonious working relationship but as soon as Courtney Astolfi told me that McCormack was named the majority whip the calculus here really started to kind of fall in place for me. I mean, clearly, Blaine cut a deal with him, right? And, and in my estimation, they're both playing the long game here. I mean, Blaine, for sure, want, he wants to be a mayor of Cleveland one day. Let's just be honest, right? And if that happens, the majority leader is almost certainly the heir apparent to the council presidency, as it was for Blaine and, and, and for Kevin Kelly before him. I don't know. What's your view of the strategy here, Chris? Well, actually, I, I want to bring up a question that I got from somebody, a smart person out in our audience who corresponds with me regularly. In a one-party town, why do you have a majority leader and a majority whip? <laughs> well, that's a great question. It makes question. no sense. I know. I know. And it's like they have a, they have a caucus, too. And it's like, what's the point of a caucus when everybody on the council is a part of the caucus? Usually that's for... So, yeah, I mean, look, clearly Carrie McCormick made a deal with Blaine. Blaine called him and said, hey, Carrie, I think I have the votes. You know, why don't we do this together and you could be my majority. But it's just what's the point of that? What, I mean, really, what's much more important is who will be the finance committee chair. That's the most powerful committee chair person. And then I mean, it's who's always the council of, president, the right? It's always the council. Not president. always. No, not always. It it's, has been in the most recent iterations. Frank Jackson did it. Um, but not always. I mean, that, that has not always been automatic. And if Blaine chose not to and he wanted to put somebody else in that role, he could. You know, I want to say McCormick has really impressed me this past year with his leadership chops, to be honest with you. I mean, not only did he stand up to Kevin Kelly and Frank Jackson in this pretty big way, rejecting that omnibus federal spent stimulus spending plan and enacting that process for developing council's own priorities, but he also introduced some really progressive legislation that ordinance that seeks to ban landlords from discriminating against Hauser Voucher, housing voucher recipients. He was he was the leading voice questioning the police department's chase policy after those carjackings. I mean, whether or not you agree with him on that, it was refreshing to see someone stand up to the administration. And, and he's boldly backed citizens who have advocated for a greater voice in government with public comment and participatory budgeting. I mean, I like what I see from Kerry McCormick, and I like that Blaine Griffin brought him into the fold and that they're branding themselves as this new era in Cleveland leadership. I'm, I'm a fan of that. And I do think council has 
has a shot at being a little more effective un- under them than in years past. No, I look, I think the fact that Blaine Griffin named him pretty much the number two, even though he's been outspoken and criticizing some of the very efforts Blaine is behind, shows that Blaine Griffin is open minded. And we have not seen a lot of that. Usually the council president wants everybody in lockstep behind them. And the fact that Blaine, you know, it's the it's the Lincoln kind of strategy put people into your circle that will disagree with you because you get better decisions. Uh, I think it's a very strong move by Blaine Griffin. I agree. If this could be good or, you know, you're now at a lot of business as usual. <laughs> right, we'll have right, to see. Right. We're out of time. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks to everybody who listens. We'll be back tomorrow to wrap up the week of news.